Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Cybersecurity has become increasingly complicated with the rise of the Internet of Things. How do we protect critical data as it transfers from first party to third party devices and services? What are the challenges of modern day cybersecurity? How can they be addressed? On this episode of Future of Tech, Nadir Israel, co founder and chief technology officer at Armis, discusses how their platform helps enterprises mitigate risks within the current threat landscape. He also shares his experiences as a founder, some of the tougher moments throughout the journey, and his advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Can you share with us, you know, your personal journey? How did it all start? Sure. So I'd say that uh, as, as cliche as it is these days for uh, Israeli cybersecurity founders, uh, my uh, journey probably is uh, best described as started in 8200, uh, which is uh, Israel's basically version of the NSA. Um, I served for six years there, um, mostly in programming and kind of uh, team lead positions. I left, um, I, I actually met in the army, Yevgeny, uh, my co-founder later on in, uh, in life. Um, I left uh, the, the army and went to study at the Technion, uh, so uh, kind of Israel's MIT, uh, physics and computer science, got to meet Yevgeny there again, and that's where we, I think, uh, really got to know each other and, uh, and get into things. And then... Um, I started working uh, while studying at uh, Google. I started working at Google Suggest or Autocomplete, uh, so the stuff that completes your queries. Uh, everyone watching this now has a face to every autocomplete failure that uh, you guys have ever had. And then um, I spent about five years uh, working on Google Suggest, on Google Maps, and other products uh, from the Google family. And I ended up leaving, uh, this was 2014, and tried to actually start something in uh, the fintech space with another another person. Uh, tried to kind of get something going uh, at the heyday of uh, small business loans and uh, generally um, uh, kind of the, the world of uh, funding small businesses. And um, after about a year, um, kind of pivoted, changed to uh, um, working with Yevgeny, who's my co-founder uh, today. And back in late 2015, we started Armis. Um, he's a CEO, I'm the CTO, and uh, we've been having um, a blast ever since uh, in the last six and a half years. I actually, I think I've 
always wanted to try um, founding something. I've always felt like that's something that I want to uh, try my hand at. But uh, but I will say that uh, to your point, uh, Google is nice. Uh, it's definitely there. There are worse companies to be at. Uh, I remember uh, even even during my studies, I remember how. When I started Google, I knew uh, I, I knew nothing about playing um, pool or snooker. I will tell you that I am very good today. Uh, I've I've had a lot of practice. Um, the team that I worked with uh, were amazing. Some of the best technology people I've worked with, um, and generally great product touches you know millions of people. But I think ultimately. Uh, there is uh, a magic, a charm about working someplace small or founding a company that is, uh, it's very different than working someplace big. I think that ultimately um, I did a lot there, but it was uh, still like a very, very small part of Google. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, it, it wouldn't be a stretch to say uh, insignificant in the grand scheme of things because, uh, you know, I left Google and Google survived. Uh, they, they managed, they've succeeded, they've grown. So I think they're doing very well without me. I think that founding a company is a very, very, very different experience. Um, it puts you way outside your comfort zone. It gives you challenges on a regular daily basis, sometimes hourly basis. Uh, but you end up growing something of your own uh, that is truly uh, magnificent. And uh, I think there, there, it's a very, very, very different experience of the two. So you, you at, a, at a certain point, this... Uh feeling or, or inspiration to, to found something of your own is there? Why fintech? Well, um, when I started, actually, um, I was thinking about areas that um, I feel in some way, shape or form compelled uh, to do something there. My uh, co-founder at the time was someone uh, from the world of private equity. I knew uh, several different small business owners and I knew how very different that experience is from startups. I think that uh, I have the utmost respect for someone starting a, uh, a regular business uh, because uh, having to deal with the stress of buying equipment or buying materials or things like that and having to pay for them uh, with money you've not yet received from your clients and paying salaries and doing all that is incredibly stressful. I think if you compare that to a startup that normally uh, is venture-backed and normally has... Uh, cash that comes from investors and not from just uh, uh, account payables, it's a very different experience. So I think I was compelled to try and figure out solutions that would help small business owners. I will say that one of the things I've learned from that is uh, this, this might sound maybe uh, a bit, um, I don't know, cynical, but uh, I, I mean, in a very pragmatic sense, but I think one of the lessons learned for myself when starting, especially your first company is uh, play to your strengths not to your desires. Uh, and I think that the reason for that is that even in the best of circumstances, even when everything is in your favor, it is still very, very hard. And any other thing you put into there, like uh, things you like or things you want or ideals or other aspects, uh, if your plan is to succeed, these are all artificial constraints on the probability of success. And I think that uh, it was very clear that uh, the background, the connections, the world I live in is cybersecurity. And I think that uh, it wasn't a stretch to go and start something in that particular space. And so when we did, uh, we succeeded. Good, which is also quite rare to succeed on your first uh, mission. But uh, let's talk a bit about this. So uh, there, there is a certain moment in time that you, uh, as, as you mentioned, met 
your co-founder and you've started discussing. Uh, so what, what is it that ARM is, is doing or what was the dream back then and, and was it completely different than what you're doing today? Um, so I'll, I'll answer the last part first. It is, uh, it's a yes and no question. It's different, uh, but not that different from at least a problem statement. When we started, uh, we did something that is a very common practice today, but at the time, uh, I think was probably the most uh, boring and unromanticized versions of how to start a startup. We didn't sit down and have a really cool idea in a basement somewhere. We actually leveraged uh, connections we had from previous lives, and especially Evgeny, my co-founder, who worked before at a company called Adalom, a cloud security company that got bought by Microsoft. Uh, he knew a lot of the clients there, and we collectively talked to dozens of different CIOs, CISOs, uh, and chief information officers, chief information security officers, and we asked them, like plain and simple, what are you guys missing? What keeps you up at night? What are the set of priorities that you understand within your business? We got a lot of different answers, but it's the one answer seemed to resonate there or one problem seemed to resonate. And that is a modern enterprise, even back in 2015, just has no clue what devices and assets they have. They just have no clue where to even start mapping out their environment. To me, that was crazy. Like I thought there's no way a company doesn't know what they have or own or what's connected to their environment. But the reality is that was the case. And early on, we asked ourselves, why would that be? Like, why would companies not know that? Why would they not be have these answers from the existing security stack? And our answer to that at the time was IoT, Internet of Things. Basically, our answer was people know what to do with their laptops and servers. They don't know what to do with everything else. So we will focus on the everything else and through that solve the general problem organizations have. We started there. I can tell you that we do today something way bigger and wider. I think uh, take that sort of roll it over time, I think that we still solve the same basic question of what do I have? Why should I care about these things? What do I need to know about them? All that stuff. But I think that the scope of that answer is very different. I think when at first we thought it was just IoT, these days we understand that the real problem organizations have is just scale. Uh, networks are the largest they've ever been by several orders of magnitude compared to a few years ago. Uh, there's no longer even a network. There's no longer even a perimeter. I think COVID taught all of us that uh, everything we thought we knew about how organizations are built is rapidly changing. Everybody's working from home, working from every country around the world. Everybody's using cloud uh, increasingly over any kind of on-prem network. All these different changes still manifest in the very same question from before of what do I have? What do I need to know about it? How do I manage and secure it? So Armas still answers that question, but it's no longer just IoT. It's really everything. And if I had to redefine the mission, we answer that question today by basically saying, Armis is kind of like the Google Maps of an organization. It maps out what are all the assets and devices that you have, no matter what they are, cloud-based, on-prem network-based, IT, OT, IoT, all these different acronyms all in one, relationships between things, who's talking to who, what do we need to know about them, and layers and layers of information for vulnerabilities, risks, threats, and everything in between. Basically, the map of your organizational battlefield, if you will, and being able to manage on top of that all the different business processes that come with that. This opens like a gazillion questions, which I'm going probably to uh, to miss few, but we'll try to address them one by one in a second. But you know, oddly enough, today we've heard uh, an episode of this season, of, of the unicorn season, with Ami Lutwak from Wiz, and he, uh, these guys are, uh, most of them are also coming from Adalom. So uh, 
Funny enough, yes. it all started at uh, 80-200 and then everybody goes to the same company and then everybody is launching a different startup. Maybe someone should, uh, you know, develop an app to see what happens to all, all you guys who <laughs> start at the same place. Now, let's start with, with something like base leveling our audiences. Can you explain to me what are the challenges in IoT? Why IoT security is so different or different, not necessarily so different than any other thing we had before? So, yes. And I would um, expand that to say why organizations even um, experiencing difficulty today? Like what, why now, basically? What changed in the world over the last few years that necessitates different solutions from what they had before? So I think fundamentally, uh, there are two problems that this breaks down into that organizations have. The first problem is uh, that it used to be a really, really simple world out there. Like if you roll back time 10 years, 15 years, Organizations were really small uh, comparatively from a footprint standpoint. They had, let's say, I don't know, 10,000 computers connected to a network that they own and control. There were firewalls, there was network access control, lots of different base solutions in place. They really had a good control or control set over what connected. That's, and that's the existence of the world. Like basically, nothing else existed within the confines of what a corporate network looks like. Roll back, roll you know, forward time, this is a very, very different scenario. I think today, if you look at a typical organization, they have anything from uh, the IT infrastructure, network infrastructure, uh, smart teleconferencing rooms, uh, you know, all the stuff that exists in a modern kind of office or building, and then add to that uh, everything that uh, in like specialized environments like hospitals or factories or oil rigs or things like that. There are tons and tons and tons of machines and devices that are basically network connected. If you take that one step further, especially over the last few years, uh, increasingly more and more things aren't even physical devices anymore. Uh, virtual machines, uh, containers, uh, cloud-based assets, workloads, all of these things participate in the party and, the, and that whole like uh, element of what is a modern corporate network. But uh, the difference between them and those age-old laptops, uh, like the one I'm using right now, is in the old world, laptops and servers would be protected by agents. They would be protected by uh, endpoint security, antivirus, all kinds of different things that were basically installed on those machines, reporting back everything about those machines and protecting them. Which brings me really to the second difference here. And that is all the other stuff we talked about can't really take an agent can't really take an antivirus. There's no antivirus for, you know, a smart refrigerator or an industrial controller or an MRI machine or anything like that. There's also, by the way, uh, not really a good scalable solution for endpoint security in the world of containers or workloads. Uh, you can't really put an agent on a Lambda function running in some cloud environment. Uh, and even if, even if you take uh, the most simple aspects of that, these days, Managing fleets of millions and millions of agents is a really, really hard task for an IT team. So I would say that increasingly what the world is seeing is having to or requiring to have a different type of security stack that doesn't rely on agents. And that's really where Armist started. We saw ourselves as a security solution that would be agentless. It wouldn't rely on anything installed on the device and assets themselves. And what we stumbled onto is that we've actually come across a security solution that is way more scalable than a solution where you need to install something on devices. And so today, it's not just about IoT anymore. It's about pretty much everything through an entirely new approach for security. 
So share a bit more about it. How can you secure something which is, let's say, as you said, the refrigerator or, or some physical device without being there in present? So um, your modern day environment, it doesn't matter where devices or assets, physical or virtual or cloud or anything else, your modern type of asset in an organization actually emits a lot of different telemetry. It, it basically, it touches a lot of different systems. It does a lot of things. And what that means is, there are actually quite a few different places uh, that can provide telemetry about uh, an asset. Let's take um, our refrigerator as an example, just uh, for the sake of it. That refrigerator has an IP address on the network, which means uh, switches and other elements on the network are aware of its existence. Uh, it probably uses something like DHCP to get its address. So it talks to network services, uh, DNS queries to get into different websites. It passes through firewalls uh, and that's before we even talk about any kind of managed system that might be talking to it. Anything like an ERP system or a managed service system, or even uh, the provider of that fridge might be having like a conversation with that fridge uh, through a cloud environment to support it. The point is all these different systems we just mentioned are collecting and emitting telemetry about that device. And the smart part about Armis or the way it basically approaches the world is what if we collected all these pieces of telemetry from key systems within the organization and put it together into what are those assets? What if I could do the, the reverse? Basically, take a DHCP fingerprint, take a few DNS queries, take a few of those telemetry points and fingerprint and build back what was that asset in the first place. So in essence, to maybe use a simple analogy, Armis on its own backend is kind of like a Shazam for devices. You give it a bit, a bit of telemetry of what that device is doing, and it recognizes what that device is. It recognizes uh, what make and model it is, uh, what operating system is it running, what applications is it running, all these different things. And then two magical things happen. One, the organization for the first time has an actual map of what are all the devices they have and what are all the assets. Suddenly there is light. Suddenly they understand what are all these different things and not only what they are, but also what vulnerabilities they have, what risks they have, things like that. But the second thing that uh, Armis is capable of doing is what if we could take thousands and thousands and thousands of these different devices all over the world in different companies and different networks and different environments and essentially crowdsource what is normal for those devices. What is a normal day in the life? Like take those fridges, maybe Armis is seeing 2000 of those fridges in all kinds of different environments around the world. We're basically learning what's normal in a day in the life of that fridge. What's normal for an industrial controller? What's normal for a Lambda function running a particular type of code in an environment? When learning that, we can also apply that logic into, is there one of those things somewhere in the world that's doing something different? When everyone is reaching out to one URL, another device is reaching out to an entirely different URL. That form of crowdsourced anomaly detection is the basis of the security engine for Armis, and it works exceptionally well. Not only does it work really well at detecting things, it works really well at not detecting garbage signals, not detecting things that are basically false positives because Instead of any kind of solution that normally works just in your environment, we're cross-referencing lots of different environments to get rid of the noise. Only track things that are actual anomalies in the world in general. This is a very good and accurate way to explain what you are doing. And, and it raises another question, which I'm not sure is now a question, but I will ask it anyhow, maybe. Um, you've mentioned the, the fridge, but let's take it into our world of an operating system or an IoT device. Let's assume that uh, we are running version 10 of something or version 12. 
And this device is an old device and it's running on a version that is no longer supported of an operating system that uh, is no longer part of, you know, of the ongoing release cycle of whomever. Or this device is uh-huh. an ancient device with an operating system that no one, no one is using and no one has heard of. How do you manage those? How do you make sure that those are not being attacked? You're touching on, a, on an exceptionally um, true and painful point. And that is, it's not even just the old stuff. Uh, we're used to uh, IT organizations applying patches on things like laptops fairly regularly, servers also fairly regularly, uh, depending on the criticality. But I can tell you that uh, if you take, let's say, an automotive manufacturer, okay, they have an entire production line that is producing cars day in, day out all the time. The risk of taking down a production line like that by patching something is extreme. They just don't. Uh, it, it's like uh, the risk of something, uh, you know, an old Windows, you update the patch and the Windows machine doesn't come up again is way too great and way too cost prohibitive for them to do anything about it. So in reality, this happens actually way, way more than you think. Hospitals, by the way, have a similar but slightly different problem. Uh, they can't patch things because uh, it would change the regulation on the device. Basically, a lot of the medical devices have gone through an FDA approval. It's approved for the software that's on it. You can't apply a patch to that because that would change the device and invalidate the FDA approval for this. So the point is, there are lots of different cases where people don't update devices, even though there are patches for real security threats. So the way we deal with that is we actually give them an alternative. Uh, yes, you can't patch them, which means they're vulnerable to different things. But what if there's a system that could track the behavior of those devices and figure out in real time if they're suddenly compromised or if someone is trying to compromise them and stop it on the spot, isolate them, or do something to basically uh, take care of that particular threat? The second thing that we do is imagine for a second that, uh, and this is really common, um, you know, back in uh, a few years back, um, widespread ransomware attacks like WannaCry or NotPetya uh, are, are very, very uh, known attacks that happen in the world. These attacks took advantage of a very ancient protocol called SMBv1 uh, by Windows. Now, most of the industrial devices out there have absolutely no need to communicate over SMBv1. So a smart system that knows what's an expected behavior pattern for those things can automatically virtual patch things, meaning applying network restrictions that no SMBv1 traffic ever approached this device. By doing that, we've reduced the risk surface significantly while not disrupting the device's operation. And the reason we're able to do that and organizations usually are a bit fearful of that is because we have the accumulated knowledge of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of these devices that never ever use SMBv1. So we can safely recommend, yes, you can turn that off and nothing will happen, reduce the risk surface, don't jeopardize any kind of operational integrity. A combination of those two approaches is usually what organizations take when it comes to these kinds of environments, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Now, what happens if you are getting into an environment, you've mentioned hospitals and other places where they have ancient devices and, and you never saw such a device? Very, very good question. So basically, this used to happen way more uh, than today. These days, uh, Armist tracks worldwide over 2 billion assets and devices uh, in all of its environments combined. We're installed, uh, or we have as clients basically over 40 of the Fortune 100s, for instance, and these are some really, really massive environments. So realistically, these days, that's actually a more rare occurrence than it seems. However, it obviously does happen, and it used to happen quite a bit. So realistically, 
there are three things that Armist does uh, to counter this. Two of them are completely automatic and take care of most things. And the third one relies on a, a team of analysts and human operators to basically take care of the long tail. The first thing is actually really straightforward. Uh, it is what we call uh, direct fingerprinting. Basically, I, I guess you can imagine this, but lots of devices and assets are actually way, way more talkative than we think. Uh, they actually broadcast lots of details about themselves in a variety of different protocols. If you're sitting at home and uh, you're looking at uh, just even looking at network traffic happening in your home, there are lots of protocols that basically broadcast to the world what a device is, what it's running, what protocols it supports, all the stuff you need for connectivity. Um, UPnP, um, other kinds of basically broadcast protocols do a, quite a good uh, job at that. And there are lots of things that you only need to basically address them once and it just blurts out at you a bunch of details. Any kind of detail like that, that Ormus uh, sees and note that it doesn't have to happen in all the environments. It has to happen in just one. In one place in the world, Armis needs to see that and our own internal intelligence basically learns from that and applies that to everywhere else. So direct, uh, direct fingerprinting is the first method. The second method is inference. So um, I, I kind of oversimplified a bit before the mechanism that we talked about with behavioral fingerprinting, that Shazam thing. Imagine that Armis is actually smart enough to not just identify um, what the song is, if you will, in that Shazam analogy, it can also detect if two tunes or two songs are actually quite similar to each other. And how are they similar? Uh, basically, what that means is maybe we don't know this latest make and model of uh, an Apple Watch, but it shares enough similarities with an Apple Watch for us to know that it's Apple and it's probably a smart watch and it's running this and this operating system and a bunch of other things that are basically inferred from how similar those two assets behave. Those two methodologies together cover these days 90, 95% of cases uh, of new types of device or assets we come across. The last bit of long tail is a team, uh, a quite a large uh, multifaceted team, cybersecurity researchers, data analysts, data scientists that basically work together to cover the long tail of things. It's not that they go device by device. They look at the entire unknown mass of things that Armist can't identify or fingerprint. And they look at commonalities, things like, uh, is there a protocol, for instance, that we should be looking at? Is there a data source or a telemetry source or an integration that we should be looking at? Uh, is there some characteristic that we can basically extract and look at that would suddenly do a mega change uh, within um, our own internal intelligence? That's usually what they do. Uh, these days, again, the out-of-the-box experience is actually quite spectacular. You just sort of see everything you have, but um, that's how we tackle things that we've never, ever seen before, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And I think it, it kind of uh, converge all the previous items together. Now, you've mentioned the fact that you, you need to, you know, to understand who is, who is talking to whom. You need to map it. How do you look into um, supply chain issues? Um, Interesting, uh, very interesting question because it's very top of mind, I think, for a lot of different organizations these days. So the way we see the world is actually, imagine that you have that map, basically, of everything. Uh, and to your point, you have the communications and relationships within that map. Now, third-party risk or supply chain risk, um, but just to make sure I understand the question, you mean 
us helping with supply chain risk or our own internal supply chain risk? Like we might be compromised and through that an organization would be. Actually, it's a, it's a good comment. Let's, let's go to uh, both tracks. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So let me start from the first one. Okay. So I, I, think, your, I think your question breaks down into really two separate questions. And I, I think both of them are, are interesting these days given cases like solar winds or other things. I think the first question is how we help organizations quantify and manage third party and supply chain risk. The other one is how do we protect ourselves as a SaaS company from becoming a supply chain risk for an organization? So the first one is, imagine you have a map of all the assets that you own, all the assets, including SaaS, including uh, third party devices and assets, including um, vendors who come into your environment and connect different devices to, to your network. All of these things are things that show up in that map. And all of these things are different risks that organizations handle with different programs. In a typical manufacturing environment, as an example, there would be many third-party vendors who regularly work within your environment. Their laptop can introduce risks into the environment just like any other employee or anyone else. And that's something that organizations are very aware of and Armis helps regularly with. On a different area, um, which uh, devices talk to SaaS environments or any kind of third party that's in use within the environment? Again, connection mapping, relationship mapping, providing organizations with exactly who's communicating with what, and allowing organizations to put policies in place that ask the question of who are all the different assets communicating with this particular area, both from a risk quantification standpoint, as well as being able to put policy in place to stop that from happening if needed. The last piece is really any kind of uh, data transfer or communication or reliance on components that come from outside. Again, each of these break down into different forms of policies and groups to deal with them, but the existence of an all-inclusive map of everything is instrumental in being able to build policies and manage any kind of these processes. I think for the most part, the supply chain risk is a problem because organizations just have no idea what they have. When uh, SolarWinds came out, everybody was hunting for what SolarWinds installations and servers do we even have? Most organizations found servers of SolarWinds they didn't even know existed. So being able to do that without spending hundreds of man hours and searching and trying to understand what's going on in the environment, but actually having a map really helps. When a new vulnerability comes uh, out, like Log4j, for instance, I know that's an overused example, but again, software libraries that exist in many, many different assets that you have, but you don't have really a good accounting of that. So being able to map out everything and understand which assets contain any kind of application or library that would contain Log4j exceptionally important in a situation like that. And companies have put hundreds of people to work trying to figure out what their exposure is and how to protect against it. So kind of answering, I guess, or shortening the, to the point, Armis helps by providing a true layer of all-inclusive visibility that you can actually query, understand, and put policies in place on top of. The other part of that uh, question is how does Armis protect itself or how does it not become a supply chain to others? I will say that ultimately, I think... Um, you can't 100% say that you will not be breached and you can't 100% say that you cannot be the vessel through which uh, another organization gets attacked. I think that uh, the engineer in all of us would never say 100% on anything. Um, however, you can significantly mitigate the risks of that happening. First and foremost, uh, your own internal security controls, both on production environments, least privileged models, um, code reviews that are also security reviews, third-party reviews of things, all those are things that I think any kind of SaaS company, big or small these days, 
has to be doing. There is no way you can skip through any of that these days anymore. It's too easy to get into an organization through that. The second thing that we do is we instruct organizations on how to put Armis itself in a least privileged mode, meaning even if Armis gets breached, how do we minimize any kind of damage into being inserted into the customer's environment? How do you lock down any kind of probe that we put in, any kind of integration that we put in, into the least privileged amount to still operate, but to uh, basically get into the habit of not allowing um, the rest of the environment to be compromised if we get compromised. The third thing has to do with our own architecture and environment. We segregate tenants uh, for that exact reason, not mixing up uh, tenant data between different clients, uh, not mixing up any security controls. If you breach one tenant, that doesn't give you any kind of access into another tenant within the environment. And I'd add that uh, part of going through some of the rigorous processes that we go through, especially around FedRAMP, uh, to enable, in order to support uh, DOD clients and federal clients, requires about 400 different security controls to be put in place. So we're going through that very grueling process of certifying ourselves, and we're about to be done with it. So as part of that, uh, we transparently open a lot of our security controls, our methodologies, all of that to our clients. They basically get visibility into our own security processes. They can audit them. They can basically tell us what they think of those security controls. All of the combination, I think, of these reduces the chances significantly of us being used as an avenue of attack. But again, there's not 100% anywhere. And I think every organization weighs the pros and cons of using a certain security tool and accepting the risk of that, which in our case, you know, we can say it's minimal, but it's not zero versus what the benefit is and what am I augmenting my other security programs with. When we started off, when Armis started, we realized that the very first problem people tackle is discovery and visibility. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. You basically can't protect what you can't see. But uh, we quickly realized also that it's good, but there has to be an avenue for managing different business processes, managing security processes, and doing something proactive. So the answer is that yes, Armis does quite a few proactive things. Uh, it can operate different tools in the environment, orchestrate complex responses, and it, it also has its own arms and legs, if you will, into the environment that it can leverage to isolate devices, take them off the network, uh, shut down privileges for different things or access into environments, do all kinds of different things by operating the controls that already exist within the environment. It can operate in a way that recommends things and it can operate in a way where it actually takes controls and take action. So each of these different options exists. I think for the most part, to us, it's not about the, the proactive controls as much as it is about the management. Can I go to that map and manage my environment on top of it? I think that Google Maps analogy to us means uh, it's not just about being able to see things on a map. It's about being able to navigate somewhere. It's about being able to drive different functions as you're basically traversing that map. So to us, we take that very uh, literally and we provide different management frameworks on top of that, different ways of not just reporting on things, but actually taking action through the tools that you have in order to facilitate those different workflows. It's about applying a ways-like application, not just the, the map itself. Correct. Now, I would like to stop for a second and go back uh, a bit into some personal questions. Um, during the years, you probably had uh, some tough days. You mentioned the fact that the journey to become 
they are unicorn but but even you know the the first steps um, have you know the, the heights and the lows can you share some of the tough moments in your, in your journey sure um, nothing nothing is, uh, is is an easy journey I think that uh, it used to be the norm to try and project that uh, that it's like uh, you know the it's always like uh, you know when someone would ask a typical founder like how's it going it's like great that's it's going well we've increased sales we grew it's all great. Um, it doesn't work like that. I think that uh, I don't know of any companies that uh, that really at every single point knew exactly what's going on and how they're doing. I think uh, for us, um, there were lots of different um, challenging moments. I think that uh, ironically, all the things I thought would be hard going in before this um, were hard, but there were much harder things I didn't even think about uh, before that. Um, things that come to mind for me, are early on, especially during our round A of uh, funding, I think that uh, you know we we weren't very clear on what it is exactly we're solving. I could tell you that uh, we would say IOT security, people would say, so what? I mean, why do I actually care about all these different devices? I mean, I don't care about my fridge, I don't care about my cameras. I care about my servers, my laptops, my core piece of the business. It took us uh, a while to understand, why? Like, why does this actually matter? And one of the lessons that we actually learned there is that it's not about figuring out problems in the world. It's not even about figuring out real problems. I mean, the fact that you could be attacked through a camera and that that has happened, and the fact that there were losses and, and problems, that's all known. That's all good. You would expect that that would be enough for a company to buy a security solution, but it doesn't work like that. The reality is, uh, there are many, many problems and organizations are drowning in those problems. It's not like uh, you, you discovered something and suddenly like a free guy that they happen to have now has something to do. It doesn't work like that. They're drowning in problems they already have. And what they're looking for is effective management solutions. They're looking for things to reduce their risk across the board. And they're looking for things that will align to initiatives that they care about the most. And if you don't tie into something that is very urgent for them or very important to them, uh, you're very likely to get passed on or get looked at at some other date. Now, obviously, things change over time. But for us at the time, it was really difficult to tie this into an urgent problem. And an urgent problem, for instance, for most organizations is ironically exactly the very first problem we set up to solve. Most organizations don't have a good asset inventory. They don't have a good database of what they have. That might seem like the most boring problem in the world, but that is a very, very real problem to organizations. It's the foundation of so many security elements that we realized that you know, most solutions just give you the very basics, but don't give you all the other stuff. If I could build a complete comprehensive asset inventory, I would solve a very big problem. And when we changed some of the thoughts around that, when we understood that our power isn't IoT, it's about being agentless and scalable and being able to do this for every kind of device out there, things really, really took a turn. Now, there's no um, playbook for that. There's no rule book. No one is going to figure that out for you. And it can get very discouraging. It can get very difficult and, uh, and lonely even to figure out those things um, on your own uh, when really all, the only signal you're getting from the market is no, no, no on things and not really any kind of uh, guidance into what, what to do. It's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of reliance on, um, in my case, my co-founder and the relationship that we have between us and the trust that we'll be able to pull through things. So I would say that's one challenge that comes to mind 
Another challenge uh, that's very typical at later stages is, um, you know, I think that we had a really, really great executive team in the beginning, but very few of them are with us today. Uh, I think that we've had to, as the company grew and mature, change different personas, uh, figure out who's the right person for a job at any given point in time. And this is uh, difficult. When you start as a startup, you start as a real family, like people create bonds. These are not just people you work with. These are people that are family. Uh, and having to make changes like that is difficult. Uh, and uh, while I think we had amazing people before and they went on to do other successful things and I love these people, uh, it's really hard. These are hard situations to come and tell, tell someone that, you know, what was good enough until now isn't good enough anymore. And we need a different person to take it from there. Those kinds of scale challenges, they always seem to happen too late. Uh, you always tend to um, drag them out because it's difficult. And um, those are challenges that are, yeah, really hard. Now, you, you, you basically started to answer my next question, which was, can you share some tips to new founders that, uh, you know, just started their, uh, their new company? Not necessarily in the, you know, in the cyber domain, but, uh -huh. but as a whole, you know, what, what would the, those will be? First of all, um, I would say, really, I think most idea, most uh, founders, when they start companies, uh, they, they think about the idea 90% of the time and other aspects of the company, they give very little thought to in the beginning. It's exciting to think about ideas. It's exciting to think about what you could build and what you could do. But the reality is uh, that the team, especially the founding team, is so, so, so much more important than the idea. I think that uh, um, in the beginning, I think that uh, taking the time to, and, and I equate founder relationships to actual relationships all the time. It's so important to date, like to, to go on dating, to find someone who you know you can go the duration with, someone who you know when everything goes to and when your back is against the wall, that you will be able to communicate, that you will be able to communicate in a way that doesn't have any ego between the people there, and in a way that's um, productive and constructive, uh, in a way that is, um, I'd say, humble uh, and approaches life from a perspective of not, I know everything, but I always, always, always have something to learn from any interaction. I think the people who apply this the best are the people who succeed the most. Uh, because founding a company is all about listening, listening to investors, uh, listening to other people in the company, listening to clients, listening to partners, just basically listening all the time and trying to apply that knowledge and not your own convictions about the world, at least until a certain point in the company. I think that is one of the hardest lessons to learn while you're doing it, because uh, Every assumption you have about the world uh, completely blows up when you try and actually approach like the first level of friction with an actual client. I think that achieving that first client interaction as early as possible, trying to put something in their hands, even if it completely blows up, is one of the most important things to do as well, because you need real world friction. All the ideas you have, all the technology you build, all the things you try to perfect are meaningless until you actually meet the real world and actually put something in the hands of a client and see them. Um, there's a lot of words I can use to describe what usually happens at that moment, but usually you're in for a very uh, bad surprise around what they think about what you've built. So get to it as early as possible 
and get that feedback as early as possible so you're not wasting time. I think between those two things, those are some of the biggest lessons that we've learned. And surprisingly, those lessons can be applied later on in life over and over again, even as a company grows. Keep doing pilots, keep doing things that basically introduce as, much, as soon as possible feedback from the market. Uh, when you hire executives, when you hire other people, again, people who you feel like you can do a long-term relationship with, that where you both feel humble and able to learn from each other, these are the basics of having meaningful relationships that actually work at scale as well. Beautiful. And so very true. Nadir, how do you make sure that uh, with all this, and you mentioned the highs, the lows, the, the peaks, the hard work, that you maintain work-life balance? <laughs> I am probably the wrong person to ask that. Uh, I have been... Um, I've had a lot of conversations with people about this. I will say that uh, I've had quite a few friends and uh, even a couple of family members in my past that uh, at some point during the journey of Armis came to me and told me, I once thought I want to be a founder. I no longer think I want to be a founder. And um, it is tough. I think that uh, the way I describe uh, founding a company Even though I've, I've never been a parent uh, myself, I will say that I feel like it, uh, it, there's a lot of resemblance between the things. You um, ultimately, especially in the first few years, you live for your children. You know, they wake up in the middle of the night, you wake up with them. Uh, you, you know, they need to go like do a test or do something, you're right there with them. I think the first years of a startup are very, very similar to that. And the emotional investment that goes into that is extreme. Now, it's not that people don't maintain work-life balances. I know plenty of people who have a better grasp on that than I do. Uh, but I do think that you should prepare yourself at the very least for the fact that it's an all-encompassing experience and that it requires a lot of work and emotional, um, emotional involvement. The benefit, though, the trade-off of that, I think, is it's one of the most satisfying experiences that exist. I'm obviously biased, but I think that... Uh, If I look today at Armis and I look at the nearly 600 families that make their living from something that only existed in you know, our brains and on paper six and a half years ago, this is one of the most satisfying feelings I can possibly imagine. Uh, and I think that uh, the fact that these are good people that we love and that you, know, you, you, you have fun coming into the office um, in the morning or talking to these people is incredible. And going back to your question about work-life balance, I think... It, I know it's a cliche statement and I've had my troubles dealing with that, but I think ultimately it's all about the priorities in life. People who prioritize certain things seem to be able to make time for them. Uh, if your priority is only work, that's likely what's going to happen. But if you do have other priorities in life, just be very, very true to yourself about what those priorities are and the rest kind of happens on its own. So, and again, I'm not, I'm not a good uh, example of that, but generally speaking, so I'm told and so I see with others. You know, in the past, when you started, it was uh, quite relatively, I would say, easy to ignite the imagination of people. You were only few. There was a dream. Now there are 600 of you. How, how do you make sure or how do you maintain the enthusiasm? People like to feel a part of something big and a, of something that's growing very big. They like to have impact. And they like to feel a part of it. Now, I think the thing that I think we noticed the most is the way to maintain enthusiasm and the way to maintain the inclusiveness or that feeling of being a part of something big and, and important 
is to be super transparent. If you are transparent with people about things, even the most basic things, they feel like uh, it's a two-way street. They feel like you're giving them all the information they need, you trust them, and so they're part of that same journey. I think in Ormus's case, uh, we are very transparent about the basic things like uh, um, option plans and values of stocks and all kinds of different things. We give a lot of information to our employees about these things, but at the same time, we also make sure every, at least every quarter, if not every month sometimes, uh, do something we call a town hall, where basically we assemble the entire company, we put the founders and maybe sometimes some of the executive teams on the spot, and whatever question comes up from the audience, whatever question is prepared, we basically answer. And we try and answer as transparently as possible. These kinds of things foster trust. And in turn, they foster a feeling of we're all in this together. We're all in this to make something spectacular happen here. That transparency, I think, also uh, goes into um, how are clients using our product? When did we completely, uh, you know, the bed and something really bad happened? How do we make sure that uh, this doesn't happen again, not in an accusatory way, but in a way that learns from that experience and builds a better product or builds a better experience. When we do have wins from some of the biggest companies in the world, share that success, call out different people who were exceptionally involved in that, make them feel like they're seen, they're heard. All of these different things aren't just about um, uh, very nice, expensive parties or sending all kinds of gifts to people. It's actually about the little things. It's actually about the experience of the day-to-day feeling heard, feeling seen, and knowing that you're valued in what you do. Couple that with the fact that Armis has thankfully uh, been very successful and grew um, quickly to where it is today. It's solving a real problem that people can get behind. I think that's the part that uh, makes people excited. The fact that um, you know there are good people here, the fact that the vibe is very happy and good, these are some of the things that uh, really make you want to come in the next day and the next day after that. Uh, and uh, I think it's kind of like how, to use a different analogy, many times you'd say in the army or in special forces that uh, people don't fight for a cause as much as they fight for their fellow man. They fight for like the fellow teammate or the someone that's uh, right there next to them. It's very similar in startups. I think that people ultimately fight because they they see the team around them. They see everything going on. And as long as you can maintain not a fake level of transparency, but a true level of transparency and inclusiveness, you can do incredible things with really smart people. Well, Nadir, last time we've met was for 15 minutes and I thought we covered everything. Today we've met for one hour and I still didn't touch zero trust and blockchain and the future of uh, security and so many open questions that I, I have listed, and, I, and as I said, so... And I'd say, by the way, that all the different topics you listed before are all very near and dear to my heart and very uh, important, interesting topics. So it would be my pleasure to talk about them at another time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.